Welcome back to another episode of the Cellar Door Society. This is Jacob. I'm Ash. I'm James. And we are stoked to talk to you all again. A couple uh, trigger warnings for today's episode. There are some mentions of domestic violence and uh, possibly some violence in general. That's just a little heads up there for you. But otherwise, Ash, James, how are you guys doing today? Doing good. It's really freezing out, but I think we're all trying to stay warm, so... Yeah, trying to stay warm. We are recording from a new location, so I apologize for if there's any echoing or anything like that. Um, James, yourself, how are you doing today? I'm chilling. I'm doing pretty well. Good. Yeah, no, Good. Uh, no major complaints. Yeah, it's like negative. It's it's two degrees now Ooh, today. It got warmer. Uh, wow. We are so um, a little bit uh, warmer than what we were this morning. Trying to stay warm, uh, but super excited to talk to you all today. Um, And today we're going to let Ash kick us off, um, and Ash is going to start the show. Yeah, um, so today I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some like statistics, signs, and other information on domestic violence. Eventually I want to get into talking a little bit about true crime stuff, but I want to make sure I go about it in a sensitive way. Um, So I'll probably do a couple little more segments, maybe diving more into like narcissistic abuse and gaslighting and just, I don't know. I think it would be cool if more people were aware of the signs and ways to get help because it is kind of a, a big problem in everywhere. I got a lot of my information from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. You can check them out at ncadv.org. Um, they're a really good resource. So just diving right into it, what is domestic violence? This is quoted as the willful intimidation, physical assault, battery, sexual assault, and or other abusive behavior as part of a systematic pattern of power and control perpetrated by one intimate partner against another. It includes physical violence, sexual violence, psychological violence, and emotional abuse. The frequency and severity of domestic violence can vary dramatically. However, the one constant component of domestic violence is one partner's consistent efforts to maintain power and control over the other. Abuse may begin with behaviors that may be easily dismissed or downplayed, such as name-calling, threats, possessiveness, or distrust. Abusers may apologize profusely for their actions or try to convince the other person they are abusing that they do these things out of love or care. However, violence and control always intensifies over time with an abuser, despite the apologies. What may start out as something that was believed to be harmless, like only wanting the victim to spend their time with them because they love them so much, escalates into extreme control and abuse, like threatening to kill or hurt the victim or others if they speak to family and friends. So yeah, some examples of abusive tendencies may include someone saying things like, you can never do anything right. They might get jealous of the victim spending time with anybody but them. They might accuse someone of cheating. A lot of times you see someone isolating them from friends or family. can be kind of something you might excuses little like trying to shame or embarrass someone you see just like a lot of instances in control like finances how someone dresses as it starts escalating sometimes you see stalking they might monitor your devices or you know put a tracking system on your car sometimes they'll sabotage birth control as a way of controlling you yeah, it's <laughs> because it's like that's that goes so much deeper too. Because now we have potentially a new life that you're bringing into this really awful situation. Um, yeah, that's terrible. 
Yeah, I've listened to um, another podcast that kind of highlights victims. It just allows them to tell their story. And I see that in a lot of these cases is someone, you know, will sabotage something like that or convince them to have a baby with them. And then it's becomes a whole nother issue. A mm. lot of states don't have a lot of good protections. And against that, like, there'll be someone that tries to seriously harm their partner and the partner will be able to get a restraining order, but then that person still has access to their child um, because he hasn't tried to hurt the child, or he or she hasn't tried to hurt the child. So here's just like some statistics. Um, On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence, intimate partner sexual violence, or intimate partner stalking. Um, with impacts such as injury, fearfulness, PTSD, and other lasting traumas. One in seven women and one in 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner in their lifetime to the point which they felt that they might be killed or someone close to them might be killed. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crime, and women between the ages of 18 to 24 are most abused by an intimate partner. And that one especially makes me really sad that people... 18, I don't know. So young, like you're just, these should be like some of the, you know, more positive relationships you would think. You know, you're going into college and whatnot, these should Mm -hmm. be fun times. And then uh, also, it's probably really difficult to figure out like if this is quote unquote normal, right? Because you are so young, you haven't had maybe a lot of experience or maybe people in your own peer group haven't gone through it or haven't vocalized that and so you feel even more alone it's really sad it is really sad and it's also sad i think a lot of times abuse is dismissed or i mean abusers are really great manipulators and they can seem like really charming people and so when the victim speaks out their friends are like oh well he seems so great you know she seems like this and it's just a front that they're putting on just to continue their control. mind games and control. I think it's important to note that domestic violence is not just physical, psychological, and emotional abuse can be just as traumatic as physical violence. And it, just because someone's not physically abusing you doesn't mean that their abuse is any less dangerous. It's still capable of escalating. And there's no typical victim. Anyone can be abused. It affects people of all education, economic levels, although your economic, your socioeconomic status can affect, you know, how your abuse is perceived, if it's validated, you know, if you call for help, if it's going to be taken seriously. I feel like there's a lot of stigma or a lot of, you know, why don't they just leave? Why doesn't the victim just leave or not trying to get out of the situation? But there's a lot of circumstances and reasons um, that someone may not want to leave. It's also important to note that the period after leaving is the most dangerous time and when the abuse is most likely to escalate. A lot of times the abuser will begin stalking, harassing, or threatening the victim. One out of five homicide victims with restraining orders are murdered within two days of obtaining the order. Jesus. And one in three are murdered within the first month. A study done by the National Institute of Justice found that the threat of separation or actual separation 
was most often the event leading up to a domestic homicide, statistically. So it's a really dangerous thing for someone to leave sometimes. There's also some other reasons people might not want to leave. Fear that the abuse may become more violent. Financial constraints. You know, if you're a single mom, you might not be able to afford to leave. Yeah. Daycare is really expensive. Especially if your abuser was somehow controlling your finances or... Yeah, I mean... I couldn't imagine having yeah. to try and find a new place in this economy. You know in this economy, Especially, right? Especially, yeah. Yeah, and financial control and abuse is a big theme among you know domestic abusers, so that's a very valid concern. If you have kids in the mix, fear of losing custody of your children is a big reason someone may not want to leave. Lack of knowledge or access to safety and support. Lack of support by police officers police officers or being dissuaded by the police officers to report domestic abuse. A lot of times the abuser is so charismatic, they'll have a way of talking to officers and like, oh no, she's just the crazy one or discrediting everything mm -hmm. she's accusing them of. I feel like people in those positions become so good at what they do, it's really easy for them to convince anyone that they're a great person and that they're not doing anything wrong. Cultural reasons, I don't know if I mentioned that, but that's also important to note. You know, sometimes your family might disown you if you choose to leave your marriage. And there's also societal factors that teach women that their worth is dependent on a man. I know I kind of have shifted my verbiage to seem that men are more often to domestically abuse, and statistically they are, but women are just as capable of abusing men and women and everyone can be an abuser and be abused and yeah it's just really sad some information on domestic violence yeah if uh, you or a loved one um is experiencing something like this i know ashley read a website earlier uh, so i assume there's resources and yeah i want to link um some resources in the show notes for this one so if you have any questions want some more information or numbers to reach out to Please visit that and, um, and there's, <clears throat> stay safe. There's also the National Domestic uh, Violence Hotline that you can call uh, if you get an opportunity or feel safe enough to. Uh, and that's 800-799-7233 if anybody needed the number. And I think there's also like, um, I've seen like there's universal like hand symbols and stuff mm -hmm. that are, I think that stuff is important. Mm -hmm. that, you know, whether you... I just need to educate myself on some of these so I can be aware of the signs. You know, if something you're going through, knowing that there are people out there who are uh, absolutely willing to help. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really terrible stuff. Yeah. I was reading somewhere that there's, like, a shot you can order at a bar. And if you order that specific shot, it'll alert the bartender to call authorities or mm. try to help get you to a safe place. Um, so it is... I like hearing that, you know, there's people out there that are looking out for others and resources and ways to get help. Fortunately, it's not always accessible for people, and I hope in the future that that'll change and that there's more resources out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that, Ash. I know sometimes when we're researching some of the topics, we have to take deep dives, so I can imagine reading some of the experiences and whatnot probably was challenging at times so uh 
Yeah, I appreciate you talking about it. Yeah. Definitely a heavy topic and maybe not fun to listen to, but I think it's important to to just be aware. Put a spotlight on it. Especially in your own friend groups, you know, I think it's easy to overlook things sometimes when it's somebody you've had an established relationship with, but it's also equally your responsibility if you see some of these things going down to, uh, you know, even just to try and open up a dialogue to make sure somebody's okay and just let them know that you're there for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important that they don't feel alone in this. Or judged or... Yeah. Like, that someone's putting shame on them. Just, yeah, letting someone know that you have their back, that you're there for them, and your resource is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm talking about today um, divination, so a little, bit of a, uh, a little bit of a pivot, if you will. Do you, either of you have experience with divination? I have a feeling Ashley probably does. So James, what about you? Do you have any experience with divination? Have you ever been uh, maybe subject to somebody sending you your horoscope or... Uh, so yeah, is a palm reading, is divination. What is divination, Jacob? For those of us who don't know that word, that's a great question, James. And let me tell you, Merriam-Webster <laughs> <laughs> Merriam describes divination as the art or practice that seeks to foresee or foretell future events or discover hidden knowledge, usually by the interpretation of omens or by the aid of supernatural powers. Okay. Okay. So not necessarily astrology, but more mediums. Psychics, tarot cards, tarot, 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 tarot. So I pronounce it as tarot. Okay. Uh, I think. <laughs> but no, astrology would fall under oh, divination. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. So yeah, any experience with any of these? Hang on. How is how is it how's astrology fall underneath it if it's stars aren't supernatural? They're like they're That's a good real question. things. So you know, we will circle back to that. Okay. Uh, okay. I'm getting ahead of you so, here, aren't I? Not necessarily. It's a really good question, and we'll circle back to it. Ashley, what is your experience with divination? I love learning about astrology, kind of like trying to map out my birth chart and figure out what that means for me. I also love tarot. I've experimented a little bit with um, like palmistry, psychic mediums, and I forget what it's called, like a pendulum. Mm, Yeah. I haven't had much luck with that. I think I... My hand's not very reliable. <laughs> but, yeah, I I find it very, all of divination very interesting. It's a very cool topic. I had fun going over the research I did on it. I've also had fun practicing some of it on my own. I have a set of runes that I like to throw from time to time. Um, and a set lot of... of- Runes like runes. Uh, I thought you said rooms, and I was like, oh, oh, oh different <laughs> rooms. Only these rooms <laughs> only I have a set of rooms. One day, James <laughs> will have uh, many rooms. I also like to read uh, tarot. I probably buy more decks than I use just because they're fun. At one time, I had a uh, brief history doing like card tricks, and so I was really just buying all sorts of decks of cards, whether they were playing cards or tarot cards. Hmm. Um, there's also oracle decks uh, for your information, James. So these are um, decks that maybe they represent the pantheon of Greek gods. And then they'll have, rather than the quote-unquote standard tarot where you have suits and things like this, but all these uh, tarot, tarot decks, oracle decks, um, all these are a form of divination. Now, 
you were mentioning earlier, James, that you had felt like your you were maybe having some some guesses or or daydreams of the future that were coming true noticeably that you found excuse me um yeah so ever since i was a kid i've always like had daydreams of like scenarios and events i mean most people would call that your standard anxiety problem but then every now and then i would have these really strong extremely strong feelings of deja vu like like chicken skin type of level uh goosebumps you know just hard strong deja vu and uh i never really thought anything of it until the last couple months where there's been two or three times and i can't remember all the specific times now that i'm talking about it which is unfortunate where it's been like a day or two prior to the event and then that event or a similar play out of that event will occur and the one most recently was uh, me and my wife went to walk our dogs and she was going to go do it by herself because we have one of those like no hand leash things and I don't know all that stuff but I had this quick daydream is what it feels like some people would call it a vision I guess of dogs off leash with this person uh, and her not being able to like protect herself and the dogs because she has three of them and like you know I was like oh I, I really strongly feel like I should go with her. So put on my jacket, you know, get ready. Uh, and as we're walking, we decide to turn down a trail. We normally don't go down. And what do we find? Two off-leash dogs. No owner around. Nothing going on. No collars on them. They weren't overly aggressive. They were actually really cute. But, you know, you can't play with random dogs. Um, can I pet that dog? Uh, can I pet that dog? <laughs> can I pet that dog? And so... Uh, my wife kept them all together tight with her and our dogs did really well. They all sat and listened to us and I kind of kept the ring around them, you know, keeping them away and stuff, but it was just wild. It's like, I, it's never happened that quickly. Like never in the same day. Uh, it used to be months, sometimes years. I would have dreams overnight and then it would be years later where I would look at something or hear a conversation and it would whack me into what felt like an alternate reality. It's very odd. And one friend a long time ago said, like, oh, well, you might have Oracle abilities or something like that. I'm, forgive me for people who know about this. I'm not well-versed. But, um, yeah, and it's just been happening more and more frequently. It's very interesting. So I don't know if that's divination or not. Yeah, I mean, it would classify under um, you are divining information or you are seeing an event before it has happened, and then you are getting a feedback or reassurance that it is coming true because it's happening before you i would challenge you to start writing these down and mm -hmm. see if yeah. you can find any sort of a pattern to i don't know to me that's super interesting and I, I would be interested to explore that further do you get any sort of that feeling of like deja vu when these events come true or does it just seem like this was just going to happen anyway and you don't get that feeling it definitely always feels like i've seen it before the best way I can describe it is deja vu. I wish, I wish I, next time it happens, I'm going to think really hard about what it feels like and what words I can use to describe it. But it's interesting. It's, it's like deja vu, but with an odd sense of the best way I can put it is like, if I had been encapsulated in a little bubble and everything else around me is still continuing, but in this bubble, I can see it at, not necessarily a different speed, it just 
feels different, almost like I'm watching it through a TV screen, if you will, mm. instead of like in the moment in person. Sounds like you may have some psychic abilities. Who knows? Maybe over the course of the podcast, we'll learn. And maybe we can develop these together. That happened to me one time very clearly. I was fostering this little puppy, and my mom was really strict. Like, if I was fostering puppies, they were not allowed to go to the bathroom in her house. Like, I had to be five steps ahead of them. And... (laughs) I had this vision that this dog walked into my mom's bedroom and just shit on her bedroom. <laughs> and um, and then it happened. And it, he, <laughs> like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like he like hunched in the same position, like, <laughs> the same spot on her floor, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. Like like I was running after him. I'm like I know it's gonna happen. I just had this vision and. Yeah, I don't know. You can't stop the future, I guess. But that feeling, right? It's, yeah, it's it almost an like, indescribable feeling. It's like, uh, I felt, yeah, like kind of I was watching my life in a movie, like behind the glass. Like, I know it's exactly. going to happen. I've seen this show before, but I can't. It's here is it. Ha- it's happening anyway. I don't know. I've and the most stupid thing, like, I don't know why it was. Seemingly dog. mundane yeah. is what it usually seems to be. But right? it was just. It was an interesting experience. (laughs) It's interesting that you guys have had these experiences. And we're going to talk a little bit about some people's theories on why we get some of these premonitions and whatnot. Uh, I found a quote from Dr. Rupert Sheldrake um, out of The Science Delusion. And I'm also going to be quoting a lot from the book The Chaos Protocols by Gordon White highly recommend this one. I just finished reading it and I'm definitely going to read it again. Anyone who is interested in chaos magic and trying to find ways to use magic practically to improve your reality, whether that's from a uh, material standpoint or otherwise, super well written. The Chaos Protocols, Gordon White, check that out. Here goes the quote from Dr. Rupert Sheldrake here. One of the most interesting findings of precognition and presentiment research is that people seem to be influenced by themselves in the future. Rather than by objective events, precognitions are like memories of the future. Presentiments seem to involve a physiological backflowing from future states of alarm or arousal, a flow of causation moving in the opposite direction to ener- energetic causation. So I guess I took this to mean... It's almost like future James is saying, whoa, this is crazy. I've got these dogs off leash right now. This is something that is not normal. I'm in a new environment. It is something out of the, the norm. So it's almost like a, uh, a radio signal or something. And then when it comes true, you can almost look at it like it was so weird that that's, that's why you had the memory of it before it happened because it's... It caused such a rift, right? right? Or like the dog shitting on the carpet. <laughs> you knew that was going to elicit a big emotional response, and that was not going to be great. And so seeing it happen so vividly could just be future Ash experiencing it and essentially sending it back, whether that be consciously or unconsciously. One of the earliest forms of divination is astrology, originating in Mesopotamia. Astrology is defined as the study of movements and relative positions of celestial bodies interpreted as having influence on human affairs and the natural world. 
Most, if not all, cultures have attached importance to what they have observed in the sky, and some, such as Hindus, Chinese, and the Maya, developed elaborate systems for predicting terrestrial events from celestial observations. Throughout most of its history, astrology was considered a scholarly tradition and was common in academic circles, often in close relation with astronomy, alchemy, meteorology, and medicine. During the Enlightenment, however, astrology lost its status as an area of legitimate scholarly pursuit. During what time? The Enlightenment. Oh, the Enlightenment period. Mm -hmm. So astrology, kind of one of the earlier forms, there are so many forms of divination. Uh, in fact, I have a list of some fun fun ones. Some of them I had heard of. Some of them I have never heard of. <laughs> More than I could possibly list and read out here, but I'll read you guys some of them. We have Abacomancy. A-B-A-C-O-M-A-N-C-Y. This is divination by dust. Oh, and, and I thought I, it was when you listened to all the ABBA, ABBA albums back to back to back. And whatever words really speak to you. Right, right, <clears throat> yeah. I like that. Occultomancy, divination by needles. By Ooh. needles? Nope. By needles. <laughs> nope. See, that intrigues me. Right. Oh, yeah. God. Nope. Getting queasy just thinking about that one. <laughs> if anyone has any experience with occultomancy, please reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Yes. Aromancy, which is, uh, this is divination by weather events, clouds, hurricanes, thunderstorms. I have heard of this one in the past. That's interesting. I dig weather. Apantomancy, A-P-A-N-T-O-M-A-N-C-Y. Chance encounters with animals. Hmm. Botanomancy, burning sage or figs. This was one that really, these next two, <laughs> these next two were uh, particularly interesting to me. I have not heard of either of these. The first one was Bumpology, B-U-M-P-O-L-O-G-Y. This is divination by bumps on the skin. Bumpology? Bumpology. All right. It sounds like a bad dance. It does, Or a club. Yeah. Could it be a club? Bumpology? Bumpology on the dance floor? Yo, I'm going to Bumpology tonight. What are y'all doing? (laughs) And then uh, this last one, Parrot Astrology. Oh, Like a literal parrot? This is in India, uh, primarily, from what I found. And yeah, a literal parrot would pick a, usually a tarot card or something similar, and they would be telling you your future. So it's completely on the parrot itself. I mean, parrots are really smart. So I tried to get my ducks to pull tarot cards for me. <laughs> get out of town. Uh, yeah, I did. But they were so afraid of the tarot, oh, cards. The tarot cards. So I think like ducks are against the occult. Like they're not allies or something. I still love them though. But like they, they're it's not, not as cool for as them. parrots apparently. Yeah. There's a there's a Monty Python bit somewhere in between there. I know it. <laughs> Have you guys heard of coffee or tea leaf reading? This is another one. I have um, heard of that Harry one. Harry Potter had some of this in there. Um, I know there's coffee ground readings um, in Turkey. That's a big thing as well. It's officially called Tassiomancy. Hmm. I'll cool talk name. a little bit about this one just because uh, I've always been interested. Tassiomancy followed trade routes of tea and coffee and was practiced by both Baltic and Slavic nations. 
Closely related to the Romani people, whose nomadic way of life contributed to the spread of its practice, while tea leaf reading originated in China, likely soon after the creation of tea, various regions practice it with slight variations, indicating that this form of divination was often an oral tradition and passed down from family to family or village to village. In the Encyclopedia of Occultism and Parapsychology, specifically 5th edition, volume 2, edited by J. Gordon Melton, notes, After a cup of tea has been poured, without using a tea strainer, the tea is drunk or poured away. The cup should then be shaken well and any remaining liquid drained off in the saucer. The diviner, this would be the one telling your fortune, the diviner now looks at the pattern of the tea leaves in the cup and allows the imagination to play around with the shapes suggested by them. They might look like a letter, a heart shape, or a ring. These shapes are then interpreted intuitively or by means of a fairly standard system of symbolism, such as a snake is falsehood, a spade is good fortune, a mountain could represent journey of hindrance, or a house could be change or success. But it doesn't stop here. Humans have been using pretty much anything we can get our hand with the needles, the dust. We're gonna talk a little bit though about specifically tarot. So like common playing cards, tarot has four suits that can vary by region. We use predominantly French suits in our Western tarot decks. Hmm. Central That's and Eastern Europe also use uh, French suits. Latin suits in Southern Europe are predominantly used. But Southern Europe? Southern Europe. Southern Europe. Like the common playing cards, tarot has four suits. Each suit has 14 cards, 10 pip cards, numbering from one or an ace to 10, and then four face cards, such as a king, queen, knight, jack, knave, page, etc. In addition, and unlike standard packs, the tarot also has a separate 21 card trump suit in a single card known as the fool. Used from at least the mid-15th century in various parts of Europe to play card games such as tarocini, from their Italian roots, tarot playing cards spread to most of Europe. Evolving into the family of games that includes German Gras Tarak and modern games such as French tarot and Austrian Konigrufen. I am probably mispronounce, mispronouncing that. Scholarly research demonstrated that tarot cards were invented in northern Italy in the mid-15th century and confirmed that there is no historical evidence of any significant use of tarot cards for divination until the late 18th century. In the late 18th century, the French kind of got involved here. The French? The French. Mm. <laughs> uh, French occultists made elaborate but um, unsubstantiated claims about the tarot card's history and meaning. Meaning. This led to an emergence of custom decks for use in divination, specifically via tarot card readings and cartomancy. Cartomancy is uh, just another form of tarot. It would be the official wording of it. There is also evidence of cards being used even in like Christianity and Catholicism where you would pull a card and it would give you a random Bible verse that you would then go read the Bible verse, and that would be your verse for the day, and you're supposed to live in that, and somehow we're supposed to also be convinced that there's not witchcraft in the Bible. In occult tradition, tarot cards are referred to as arcana, with the fool and 21 trumps being referred to the major arcana and the suit cards, the minor arcana. This was termed, this, this term, um, the major and minor arcana, was coined by French occultist Jean-Baptiste Allet. 
Hmm. He was the first to produce a bespoke tarot deck specifically de- designed for occult purposes, and this was around 1789. What does occult mean in this instance? Because I know it has kind of a general Specifically for divination. Oh, like, okay. It is not used to play card games with. You were using this to tell your future or Got to read it. other people's Got future. It. The 78-card tarot deck used by esoterists has two distinct parts. The 78-card deck possesses the Major Arcana, or the Greater Secrets. These are 22 cards without suits. Their names and numbers vary, but in a typical scheme, the names are the Magician, the High Priestess, the Empress, the Emperor, the Hierophant, the Lovers, the Chariot, Strength, the Hermit, Wheel of Fortune, Justice, the Hanged Man, Death, Temperance, the Devil, the Tower, the Star, the Moon, the Sun, Judgment, the World, and the Fool. Cards from the Magician to the World are numbered in Roman numerals, while the Fool is the only unnumbered card and sometimes placed at the beginning of the deck as a zero. The Minor Arcana, or the Lesser Secrets, consist of 56 cards divided into four suits of 14 cards each. Ten numbered cards and four court cards. The court cards are king, queen, knight, and page, or jack. In each of the four suits, the traditional Italian tarot suits are swords, batons, coins, and cups. However, in modern occult tarot decks, the suit of batons is often called a wand, rod, or stave. Staff. The suit of coins is often called pentacles or discs, and the suit of cups is often referred to as goblets. Hmm. Goblets. Goblets. Not goblins. Goblets. Interesting. Let's not lens. Hmm. Some practitioners believe tarot cards may be utilized as psychology is a psychology tool based on their archetypal imagery, an idea often attributed to Carl Jung. During a 1933 seminar on active imagination, Jung described the symbolism he saw in the imagery of tarot. This is a quote by him. The original tarot, the original cards of the tarot consist of the ordinary cards, the king, the queen, the knight, the ace, etc. Only the figures are somewhat different, and besides, there are 21 additional cards from which symbols or pictures of symbolical situations. For example, the symbol of the sun, or the symbol of the man hung up by the feet, or the tower struck by lightning, or the wheel of fortune, and so on. Those are sort of archetypal ideas of a differentiated nature which mingle with the ordinary constituents of the flow of the unconscious. And therefore, it is applicable for an intuitive method that has the purpose of understanding the flow of life, possibly even predicting future events, at all events lending itself to the reading of the conditions of the present moment. So why should you guys use it? Why should James use it? Why should listeners who maybe had a tarot reading or don't possess any tarot cards of yourselves um for starters it's fun i'm sure ashley can speak to this it's it's fun to open up a new deck of cards or to give your friends a reading yeah i love searching for decks that i just find really beautiful or that the imagery really speaks to me it's fun to kind of get to know your deck i enjoy learning about the meanings of the cards like for example the death card used to seem so scary but Mm -hmm. now it's just I love pulling that card because I feel like it means I'm about to grow or things are about to change. It might be like scary in the time, but ultimately it leads to a positive outcome. And James, you've never had anyone in your life offer you a tarot reading or do a tarot reading for you? So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, <clears throat> no, actually, I've known a lot of people that use them and deal with them. 
and you know have have that type of thing going on but yeah i've never actually sat down and had anyone give me a reading or you know all that jazz and uh you know we could do one on air if you wanted i don't i don't i don't know how it works and how long it takes so maybe not because i'm completely uneducated but yeah that'd be fun yeah i agree absolutely i i can't say that there's something to be said about the excitement of opening a new deck and um, finding ones there's so many different variations so finding even if it's just an art style like i've seen them like cat tarots where everyone's a cat i have some that are like they're old school italian art drawings on them my my rule of thumb is whatever tarot deck jumps out at you and seems like you would have fun or just want to be around it that's the one i caution you from jumping right into like oracle decks i would recommend if you're going to go if you're trying to get into tarot get a tarot deck rather than an oracle deck sometimes they can include a lot more cards or fewer cards so um there are a couple of universal ones i think the rider weight one is pretty universally taken in most occult books um, that's not to turn you away from oracle decks definitely buy a couple of them but if you're just getting started i think a classic tarot deck's fun for that yeah i got my first couple with the traditional rider weight mm-hmm. but just to help me learn like the symbolism because most like decoding books that you get kind of talk about the imagery and those specific terms so i found that helpful for like learning just right off the bat and then it was easier to move into more obscure decks and the oracle cards but yeah just getting that foundation yeah i agree um and we're actually going to talk about a way if you find yourself in possession of a tarot deck we are going to talk about a way to calibrate yourself with that tarot deck and kind of uh, try to get the most of it as you can. So I'm going to read a couple things from you. This is from the Chaos Protocols. I want to read, um, this is a quote from this gentleman, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, uh, from his book Science Delusion. Uh, he was doing some studies on premonition, precognition, things like this, and so this is a segment from that. He says as follows. On my database, there are 842 cases of premonitions, precognitions, and presentiments. Of these, 70% are about dangers, disasters, and deaths. 25% are about the neutral events, and only 5% are about happy events, like meeting a future spouse, winning the raffle. Dangers, deaths, and catastrophes predominate. This agrees with the survey of well-authenticated cases of precognition collected by the Society for Physical Research, in which 60% concerned deaths or accidents. Very few were of happy events. Most of the others were trivial or neutral, although some were very unusual. In one such case, the wife of the Bishop of Hereford dreamed that she was reading the morning prayers in the hall of the bishop's palace. After doing so, on entering the dining room, she saw an enormous pig standing beside the table. This dream amused her, and she told it to her children. She then went into the dining room, and an escaped pig was standing in the exact spot she had seen it in her dream. This, to me, basically says, oftentimes when we are divining things, or if we're reading tarot cards, we're generally asking about positive things you know am i going to meet the love of my life am i going to get this job am i going to become you know rich famous what have you but this is showing that 
divination tends to have greater success of telling you when bad things or things that maybe aren't great are coming to you. And so taking that and, and then changing maybe how you approach the questions that we're bringing to the tarot might further benefit us. Maybe if we have a plan, you have a big goal, you want to, you want a new job, right? So maybe instead of asking the deck, am I going to get the new job? You can ask it, what kind of obstacles might be in my way that I haven't seen yet, right? Help me see something that maybe I haven't counted for in the plan. And so I can be even more prepared. We're also going to read a little bit from uh, Peter Carroll. He is considered one of the fathers of chaos magic. Um, he has an essay, Magical Theory, so we're going to read a quick paragraph from that. Peter Carroll says as follows. When the magician divines, he interacts primarily with future versions of himself. In divination, he a magician is gender neutral. So if you are a woman and you want to be a magician, guess what? You're a magician too. It doesn't matter. He's using the word he, but uh, please replace it with whatever you feel most uh, comfortable with. In divination, he basically taps into what he may know in the future. A curious circularity seems to exist in divination. It only seems to work if at some point in the future you will end up knowing the result by ordinary means. This explains why the best results in divination seem to occur for either very short-term divinations about unlikely things that will happen in the next few seconds, or for events which are heavily deterministic but not yet obvious in the, future, in the further future. So there's a... There's a Axiom in Chaos Magic, which is to enchant long and divine short. And so the idea is when you are creating sigils or you're doing spell work, you should try and send you should try and set yourself up for goals that are far enough away that they can have time to be realized and we're not rushing things. But when we're doing divination, we should try and do things that are in our immediate vicinity. Something that's close is going to have a better chance giving us that feedback than something so far away. Trying to foretell what happens a month from now would be trickier because there's 30 days of variables, whereas what might happen to me tomorrow might end up being a little bit easier question. Um, what I want to end with for uh, my section here on divination and specifically tarot is a way to calibrate yourself with your tarot deck. It is really simple, really quick and easy, and I think uh, you guys might enjoy it. I personally recommend doing this in a comfortably lit room in some comfortable clothes, maybe some good tunes that are relaxing going, maybe some nice incense if that's your jam. Begin with the deck and the accompanying book sitting beside you. A quick aside here, there should be no shame about pulling out that little booklet that comes with your tarot deck and reading from that. Ultimately, you're going to come to your own feelings about each of the cards and you're going to make your own determinations. So don't feel like you are uh, less than or not the real deal because you have to pull out the little paper book. I, I think that should be highly encouraged and anyone who says otherwise... Yeah, that's not really cool. Begin with the deck and the, <laughs> begin with the deck and the accompanying book sitting beside you. Lift the first card and see if you can discern its traditional meaning. Check the book and see if you are correct. If you are correct, place this card to the left of the main pile or to the right if you are not and move on to the next card. Continue the process until you have exhausted the main deck, leaving you with two piles one of cards whose meanings you recall, and one whose meanings you do not. Shuffle the pile of cards whose meaning have escaped you, and repeat, checking each meaning against the book as you go. And eventually, and in less time than it would feel, 
you'll have a full deck of cards whose meanings you know. At this point, shuffle and run through them one more time and then put them away for the rest of the day. Rather than cramming, recall is higher in instances where there are gaps in study or memorization. So I wanted to share that with you guys. I thought it might be a fun tool for those of you just getting into tarot to become more comfortable with your decks. Um, And maybe those of you who have had decks for a while, a good refresher and just kind of getting to know your decks. So. You know, it's uh, this is really interesting because, like I said, I have no knowledge, never experienced this. Like, like I've said, I've known people who have uh, have had tarot decks, but never really sat down and asked them questions. And so, some of the like, I guess you would say, super super beginner questions are: How do you even know what card to pick up? Is it purely based on feeling? Is there some type of number strategy to it and i'm assuming the little book that comes with the packet explains probably at least some of this i'd imagine yeah um so you know i've been just trying to help out those people who maybe have been curious but have never actually delved into the world of it you know james that's a really good question so there's there's actually a variety of tarot spreads that you can use when you're reading you could do a single card if you want and just pull a card and say you know Almost like a horoscope, you know, what what challenges might I seek today or what I see today and, and pull that card and, and maybe it would tell you. There's a couple, I guess you could call them traditional. There's a three card spread, which is generally like a past, present, future. And we can do that after the show. Uh, we'll do a past, present, future reading for you and we'll throw it up on Instagram. There's also five card spreads. There's seven card spreads to represent every day of the week. You could do a 12 card spread to represent every day of the month if you wanted to there's a spread called the celtic cross and a lot of these will be in your booklets you can also find them online i generally just do a three card spread that tends to be what i resonate the most with past present future things like that typically what you'll do is you will have your deck and in this case we'll say it's newly calibrated you can decide if you want to do the whole deck or if you want to do just the major arcana, I a lot of times will do just the major arcana. So how I many will, how many cards is that? That's twenty two cards. Twenty two cards, and yeah. how many cards in a deck? Fifty. Seventy six. Seventy six. That's a right. lot of 76 cards. Seventy six cards. I'm, I mean, I'm guessing. Uh, can the number vary based on right. type of yeah. tarot cards? Seventy eight cards. Seventy eight cards. Mind. Sorry, I didn't mean to kick you. No, it's okay. Um, yes, there's fifty six cards in the lesser arcana, and there are twenty two cards in the major arcana. I find it funny that there's less cards in the major. The major ones represent bigger concepts. Is essentially the the minor arcana typically represent like very, they can be like, you know, bad luck in sports or things like that. The major arcana are things like justice, death, the the magician. These these bigger ones that. Uh, that can resonate. So I will ch- typically sort them into major and minor, minor, and then I will order the major arcana 0 to 22. Oh, okay. Or 0 to 21, rather. Um, generally, on the card themselves, they'll be marked in a no- Roman numeral, so you can just order them that way. And then I like to shuffle them. As I'm shuffling them, I like to keep in my mind my question... Or if I'm doing a reading for someone else, I like to keep them in my mind. Uh, Whether that's looking at a photo of them, thinking of a cherished memory, or maybe if it's someone very special, they already 
maybe make my heart sing, right? So it's easy for me to conjure them in, in my mind's eye. Uh, at which point you would then shuffle the deck. I like to kind of flip them around as well because there can be upright and reversed meanings when you read the tarot. Oh, so I like to make sure that I get a mixture of both and that there's a fair chance is what I call it. Um, generally, the reversed meanings can usually lean more towards challenges rather than blessings, you could mm-hmm. say. Maybe it's an obstacle it's letting you know. Um, so I, I like to not just do all face-up readings because I feel like that's not fair. But that's just me as a person, right? Okay. So pick whatever feels right to you. As you're shuffling your cards, you should pay close attention to any card that... I call it jumping, uh, but any card that might jump or fall out of the deck. Um, these are generally supposed to be very highly regarded. The, the deck is essentially choosing a card for you and saying it should be included. So I will just put those aside. And I like to keep all my cards face down until I read them. And then you just pull three or two or however many cards off of the deck. And I generally set them face down and I will flip them over one by one. So I will start and I will flip my past card and I'll take a moment and just kind of absorb what I see on the card. Refer to your booklet, refer to online, whatever your trusted source is. And then when I feel like I've gleaned what I want to know out of that card, I'll flip the second card. And a lot of times you'll be surprised by Sometimes the art on the cards will kind of go together, almost like it's playing a scene out for you. Sometimes they will be polar opposites. Sometimes you can start seeing them tell a story. That's my favorite part when things start to kind of click. Um, And so I'll repeat that same process with the middle and the third card. There are people who say you can also pull the most bottom card off of the tarot deck as well, and that can give you additional context. So these are just additions or styles that you can add on if you want. Um, But that's how I generally do my reading. Ultimately, though, just play around with them. Like whatever reading is most fun or most enjoyable to you, that's ultimately what matters the most. I I absolutely want to hear from my listeners if you have had tarot readings that were uh, maybe super profound or maybe things that came true in a tarot reading and you feel comfortable sharing that with us. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to us via Instagram at the Cellar Door Society. Head over to our website, thecellardoorsociety.com. Get in touch. James, what do you have today? So, uh, it's I guess you could designate it as true crime. It's more of a little bit of a history lesson, if you will. It's about the Peaky Blinders. Now, most of you listening probably, uh, if you're listening in anywhere that has BBC and or in America, you've heard of the show Peaky Blinders. I'm sure it's been around for quite a long time. And it's a really amazing show. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite show. Um, I love how it was directed and everything about it. But to get into it, a lot of times people ask, like, oh, are the, were these people real? Are they, is this completely fiction? Is the whole show made up? Are there pit, bits and pieces that are true? Uh, now, James, we have had a um, Peaky Blinders party, you and I, where we got together yes. and we watched an episode yes. and you made me arguably, no, there's no argument. <laughs> the best vegan pizza I have ever had in my That's entire sweet. life. That's sweet. That's very um, sweet. Yeah. So uh, just throwing that out there. Some cellar door society lore for the listeners, if you will. Yeah. No, I love it. I love James it. 100% makes not even the best vegan pizza, just the best pizza. He's, um, so fun fact about James, he is <laughs> one of the best chefs. I, I will just call it chef. It's not like a... Uh, 
you know, everyone's got a buddy who's like, I watch the cooking channel and I like to cook. Um, and those guys have talent. This is a, this is a skill level. Now I, I've, I've, I went to culinary school out of high school. I didn't stick with it, but uh, I have a, a little, um, a little experience under my belt. Um, James can run circles around me with a hand tied behind his back in the kitchen. Uh, what he produces out of his kitchen could rival most restaurants in our area. And yeah, so a little fun fact about James, he is, He's a kitchen witch. I, I'm going to call witch. it. He's a kitchen witch, man. Yeah. He's uh, that. That's that's how Creates I would identify. You. Just straight up magic with with these foods. Well, Absolutely. I, I appreciate all the compliments. <laughs> I uh, for the listeners, I don't know. I, I think I'm being boasted about a little. No, little this highly. is no lip service. Um, no. <laughs> well, I appreciate the compliments. I really do. Uh, and now that I'm thoroughly read and embarrassed a little bit, uh, I'm going to jump into this topic. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, the Peaky Blinders, right? Um, I have done off and on research on them a couple times just because I do love the show so much. But last night I was uh, looking at some topics I had written down to talk about, and none of them really stuck out to me, and so I turned on my favorite show, and I was like, you know what? No, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing this. I'm doing my show. Yeah. So... May I also add some more, Laura? You actually have a Peaky Blinders tattoo. I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's based on the show. It's uh, Grace's blue sapphire necklace and uh, Tommy Shelby, the main character's uh, gun of choice in the first few seasons, which is a Webley. Tastefully done, I will add as well. Tastefully Thank you. done. Thank you. Yeah, See, went to a really great artist for that one. I've heard a lot about Peaky Blinders and like, oh, it's a really good show. I've never watched it. I don't know anything about it, so I'm going into this completely blind. So We might have to have a new Peaky Blinders party, season oh, one, episode one. Um, Praying for pizza. Yeah, oh. of course, of course. <laughs> well, that, that's really exciting for me, Ashley, because let me tell you, it's going to be very interesting. We're going to talk about a little bit about the show. We're going to talk about the real people. We're going to talk about uh, the myths that the romanticized thoughts that have been put forth, and so on. What do we think we know about the Peaky Blinders? Okay. We know they're ruthless. We know they're violent. The show shows them as having organized crime. Razor blades in the cap. Razor blades in the cap. We're going to cover all of this stuff. While the show covers most of the personality of the gang with the violence and the racketeering and that, it's not totally true. There are some dramatized things to it. But uh, I'll give you a little snippet I wrote about it. The show follows the British gang, the Peaky Blinders, as they grow their business. Starts out with pub protection, racketeering, stealing, and various other small-time crimes. The leader, Tommy Shelby, takes the Shelby family through all types of large-scale, intricate crimes while uh, skirting the law. As the show continues, they move into some very serious, high-level crime, exporting, importing weapons, drugs, and various other items. Also, most of the characters at the start of the show are in their late 20s to early 30s. This is all set in the backdrop of Birmingham, England. And all of that, that little snippet, most of that's actually true. This, that's what this gang did. Uh, and I have a picture here that I'll put up on the Instagram later on, but it's some mug shots of the original Peaky Blinders. Oh, that's right. Cool. And uh, the way a lot of people describe these characters are baby-faced or young in, in character. Say, how, how old is that, that boy? Yeah, we're going we're gonna <laughs> to use that boy. <laughs> Uh, let me take a look here. So, uh, yeah, looking at these people, they uh, they look pretty young. And you know the cool thing is you look at them and you're like, okay, I see the style. There's a definite 
style to them, and we'll cover that as well. I love giving little teases of stuff we're going to cover so it gets your mind going. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting stuff. So the far right one is Tommy? Uh, so as far as like who's based on who, there are a couple people that are based on real characters. Um, but as far as the Shelby family goes, they never existed. That's a completely made-up gotcha. crime I just, family. I asked that because his name was Thomas Filbert, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> name's up top. There's a couple people that were compared. I th- believe, if I remember right, the middle one, the very middle one out of the five, that was Thomas, is what his character is based off, the look at least. Got it, okay. Uh, and I'll tell you why that man was picked in just a minute. But some of the prominent members, and you guys feel free to Google these people, uh, try to look them up, uh, were Kevin Mooney, David Taylor, Ernest Haynes, Harry Fowles, and Stephen McNicky. Uh, these are just some of the names that were registered under the actual gang. Now, a lot of these people would change their last names in different cities when they'd get arrested by the magistrate, or they would you know, lie and use completely different names. There wasn't identification like there was nowadays. So... It was easy for these people to hide and very hard for them to be tracked through records, unfortunately. Yeah, no cameras, yeah. Right, yeah, no cameras. Uh, it was just kind of like a paper card you'd carry around that you could fake really easily. If the, they're blinding you, it would also make it hard for uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of these people were arrested when they were in their teens. Uh, the crimes ranged from breaking and entering all the way down to common bicycle theft. Uh, and this is, yeah, I know. I found that really funny. When I read uh, that three of them were picked up for bicycle theft, I was like, this, this must mean something different in the 1890s than now because it's still a bicycle, but I'm sure they were much more expensive back then. Trying like, to explain that to your partner. Like, why are you in jail? Like, oh, stole yes. a bicycle. Stole a bike. There was this bike. It, I just couldn't. The best way I can, like, it's like Grand Theft Auto today, right? It's right. like if yeah. you got oh, your whole sure. car yeah. stolen, you stole someone's way to work that day, you yeah. know? Um, I thought that was really funny. Uh, but why were they called the Peaky Blinders? That's that's something that never really gets explained. It, in the show, it's because they have razors in their caps, and that's how they would uh, get their enemies. Um, so the show describes them as Peaky Blinders because... They blind you with the razors in their peaked caps. Wait, what? In your eyeballs? Yeah. yeah. Wait, what? No. So oh. they, would, they wouldn't uh, like. Push don't ruin it too much your, of the show. Yeah, I won't ruin it, but uh, basically, the characters, and maybe James will describe some more of this, but in the show, the characters would have razor blades sewn into their caps. And then when they got into a scuffle, they would just basically use the cap as like a, a weapon mm-hmm. uh, for the face. And sometimes your eyes would get cut. Um, so it was definitely brutal. If you watch the show, listeners, um, definitely not for the weak stomach. There are um, definitely some very violent scenes, but um, yeah, I mean it's a show. It's an amazing it's show. show. So Jacob, you're you're exactly correct. That is that is uh, where the show gave their name. But I'm going to tell you the real truth behind uh, Peaky Blinders. And the Peaky Blinders, I can't stress this enough. We're an actual gang. Mm-hmm. They uh, did rise to prominence. They had. Uh, domination over small heath in birmingham for 20 years um which is a long time for a gang to run but we'll get into the uh, name first the term peaky blinder was coined by this gang um, out of small heath which is a neighborhood in birmingham england 
The game was mostly made up of kids and young adults that were stricken with terrible poverty. Uh, this time in England, there was a lot of economic, economic problems. Right before World War One. there was po- rampant poverty, rampant financial issues. Uh, so these kids kind of turned to hooliganism. Crime. You know? yeah. Peaky was a term often used to describe any flat cap with a peak, right? Nowadays, we all know it because of the show, but before that, it was known as like a golfer's cap in some parts of the world. Basically, it's that short, small, beret-looking thing with a bill, right? Do you have one of those? I do not. No, I do not look good in them. I have tried them on. But in so, like, that was where that term came from. Peaky was specifically describing that type of cap. Now, blinder was a Birmingham slang term used to describe someone of dapper appearance. Mm. The gang not only lived by these two words, uh, it was their (laughs) signature style that justified the name. Members of the gang often wore cravats, bell-bottom trousers, jackets with brass buttons, and steel-capped boots. The higher-level people would wear silk scarves, pocket watches, things of luxury back in the day. Okay, that sounds hot. Yeah, these are some gangsters with style. Yeah, like it's it's actual. Like it's that was name. the whole point. That's our is brand. Peaky Blinders, yeah. yeah. And that is what happened eventually, is that was their brand. They didn't hide that they were in this gang at all. Walking down the street, you could look at somebody. This is how the newspapers in Britain describe them. You could look at them and say, That's a gangster. I'm about to get fucked up. Mm. That's done. I'm about to get mugged. You know, um, and they didn't always mug people. It wasn't, it wasn't like their main form of money, but that's how the younger members if you will rose to prominence right so what has been shown correctly and what has been made up of the show i'm not an expert in any of this i'm not an expert in english history fashion especially when we're getting into such niche neighborhoods such as birmingham very specific areas so for all the international listeners anybody who has experience in this please forgive me if i mess something up and i'm happy to hear about the correction too because history is my life they did hail from Small Heath in Birmingham. They also came from another neighborhood called Cheapside, Cheapside? which is <laughs> right, which is where they kind of amassed the crimes that they were caught and reported for were racketeering, murder, assault, petty theft, breaking and entering, smuggling, hijacking, uh, and the list kind of goes on from there. The group was also known for its violence and e- and uh, and ease towards it, so like they were very quick to use it, weren't hesitant. Some of the more interesting facts that were included in the show were uh, that a Scottish chief of police was sent to help deal with the gang problems. That's actually 100% true. Mm. They recruited the Scotland Yard uh, or one of their detectives of organized crime to come help eradicate the gang problem in Small Heath in Birmingham, England. And that guy crushed, I can't, I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but he crushed that Yeah, role. phenomenal. I, I did, did not like him job. at all. He uh, did really good in that. And then the other interesting fact is in the show, the a lot of the head members, Tommy Shelby, Arthur Shelby, the brothers, they all served in World War One, specifically the Battle of the Somme, uh, which was a very gruesome battle. This is true, but with a little twist. The gang actually didn't exist after World War One. Mm. Little twist there, a little, little historical jump in time. So maybe them being sent off was part of the reason why yeah yeah exactly and we'll get into that in just a moment so another interesting fact is that the boxing and fighting that you see in the show is 100 percent real that is what these gangs did to figure out territories to figure out who was who head of what and what was what they were known as sloggers or slogging gangs the things that were romanticized or just 
not true at all. Range from how long the gang ran and who they defeated. Uh, the Peaky Blinders were only active during the years of the 1880s through the uh, through the 1910s, right? And like I mentioned before, World War One was from 1914 to 1918. They couldn't have served in the war and then been Peaky Blinders. Kind of. We'll get into that. While some of the members did serve, another misconception with the show is that the Shelby family, or the Peaky Blinders, defeated Billy Kimber. Uh, for those of you who have seen the show, that's kind of like the final boss for the first season, second season-ish. This man was real. Like, Billy Kimber, an actual name and everything, was a real person who ran the Birmingham Boys Gang. Okay? Um, yeah, re- they're really clever with the names. The truth is that Billy Kimber and his men took over the Peaky Blinders when they fell from power. The biggest thing about the show that isn't true are the razors and the hats. Mm-hmm. There were never any razors in their hats. No one sewed into them. One, because disposable razors like that weren't even invented or being made until 1903. Huh. Secondly, uh, the Gillette company has come out and said, like, yeah, that's impossible because these were insanely expensive like, well out of the reach of this gang-type money. Like, this was your king, your queens using these disposable razors at this time type of deal. So that just isn't true. It's unfortunate. Now, where that idea came from, though, was actually from a book called A Walk Down Summer Lane by John Douglas. In this book, he describes gangs that use razors in their hats to walk up and ram their head into people to knock them out and or to slice their eyes open. Or to slice their forehead so that blood would rush into the eyes and essentially blind them, right? Some final thoughts on this. The Peaky Blinders were certainly a very real gang that ran some things in the streets of Birmingham. The style and attitude seems to have been translated well into the show. Some things obviously have to be changed and dramatized to make a good TV. Overall, though, it's not the most historically inaccurate show out there. Uh, If you choose to go searching for more information, check out the British Newspaper Archive. Uh, there's really cool articles and a great searching system. Uh, also, reach out if you have any stories or comments or want to talk about things. And then this is a picture of Billy Kimber. Um, oh, he actually kind of looks like... Yeah, they did a good job matching the actor to the actual yeah. person. It's really interesting. And so back to kind of some questions you guys asked. Who is the Thomas Shelby character? I'm going to pass the iPad around again. The middle one. And you can tell he's leader or higher up because if you look at his neck he has a silk scarf on Mm. you can see it around um and their style was very specific it was almost like a uniform it was button down shirts slacks always an overcoat always a uh, a peaked cap with a flat bill um and then were people shorter then well you got to remember these people were essentially children you know uh, like the one mug shot on the far left that kid's 11 or 12 years old these guys have like full on mustaches and it still says they're five four. I mean maybe they were. I don't know. <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Five. Maybe that was part of the want to be powerful, you know, Napoleon Napoleon complex. Yeah. Uh but yeah, and so the other ways you could tell Peaky's apart from other people was brass uh shirt ties or not shirt ties. Brass shirt buttons. What I can't remember what they're called. Uh, collar pins. Yes. Uh, that's it. Um, also, you know, like pocket watches, rings, jewelry. Another interesting fact is in the show, it shows the girlfriends and wives of these peakies being very well taken care of, very uh, high up society type stuff. That is true. If you were with a peaky blinder, you had to be just as dressed up. You had to have just as much luxurious things. 
uh, to demand the respect of people around you. Right? Love to hear that. Yeah, it's really, it's really quite interesting. Now, these men were not good to their partners. Yep, they bought them nice things, but it was not healthy relationships in a lot of the instances. Some other fun facts about Peaky Blinders and like all of this system is that they created slang. This gang actually is, uh, from what I can read, the start of the generic term of Peaky Blinders. So after the gang left in the 1910s, Billy Kimber took over the journalistic world and the slang world kind of took the Peaky Blinder to continue referencing young street criminals. Mm. Uh, anybody of young stature doing that, they would just be like, oh, that's a Peaky Blinder over there, you know. So that also kind of complicates finding information later on, especially when you're looking outside of the uh, TV show. Uh, not the TV show, but outside of the year range of when this game existed, if you're doing historical research, is you can run into places just using it as a slang or a descriptive term. But yeah, I thought it was super interesting. Um, the first season of the show is pretty accurate to some of the arrest records, to some of the actual happenings around them. But once it hits second season and on, it's pretty much just... Fabrication. Historical fabrication, yeah. You know, it's they use the right settings, the right costumes, the right all this stuff, but the it's family and story is fake. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, just a fun, light one, you know. Yeah. I figured since I talked about heavy <laughs> topics in previous ones, I would, <laughs> I would take a nice light approach this week. But you don't have to not talk about heavy topics. Oh, we'll go back to it. Oh, very good. Um few last things. Some of the places I got my information uh, was uh, Peaky Blinders Wiki, right? Um, History History Extra, British Newspaper Archive, and actually GQ did a whole historical spread on the Peaky Blinders. Oh, get out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was pretty interesting read. And some of the things you can search on Google and or for newspaper articles are the words Peaky, comma, Blinder, altogether, Sloggers, Billy Kimber, Small Heath. All those will pull up some good information. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah. Now, yeah, we'll definitely have to get together and do a uh, Peaky Blinder show foray for you, Ash. Um, that would be awesome. Yeah. It's a good time. We'll uh, give you a heads up on the very violent parts in case you need a, a trigger it's warning. It's mostly just stuff with eyeballs that eyes, bothers me. Me like, too. Anything else, I'm like, eh, but when it involves the eyes, eh, it's too much. It's too much. Uh, they're... I think we have some elephants above us. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I think it's a dog. It is a yeah. dog playing yeah. around, which is kind of sweet. Oh, I love it. For yeah, the dog, I'm not really because it's so cold outside. I, I don't mm-hmm. want it to you got to get the energy outside. Absolutely, you got to do something. So, um, yeah. Well, James, I really appreciate you sharing the Peaky Blinders info. Ash, I appreciate you talking about domestic violence and uh, putting a spotlight on it. And um, again, if you uh, need these resources, uh, please check out that website Ashley mentioned and. Um, I hope you guys learned a little bit something about divination or maybe piqued your interest to get a tarot deck of your own. Pun intended with the peak there. Oh, there you go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, we won't blind you, uh, though, with the tarot cards. So <laughs> you are completely safe. This is not a gang. This is a society. This is the Cellar Door Society. And I'm Jacob. I'm James. I'm Ash. And we are signing out.